Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Premier Scott Moe of Saskatchewan. The Premier has also hinted, according to a story on Global News, that there might be some res- uh, easing of COVID-19 restrictions going forward. And I'd like to speak with the Premier as well about the vaccine rollout. Premier Mo, thank you, as always. You're very gracious with your time, and I uh, really appreciate that. Thanks so much, Roy. And uh, what is a beautiful, beautiful Sunday out in Saskatchewan anyway, and I think across the prairies we're uh, pretty happy to be heading for spring. I think, we, I think we're all happy to head for spring, and, and whatever that brings along with it. Premier, uh, we just heard Premier Pallister, who doesn't seem happy at all. What's you, what did you come away with after the conversations with the Prime Minister about the increased health care funding for the provinces from the federal government? Well, I think he's expressing some frustration, and I think it's fair to say that all Canadians have a, are bearing a fair amount of frustration uh, right now after this past year. But Pallister is in government for literally decades now to become a full funding partner in, in health care on behalf of all of the Canadians that we collectively and together represent. And and we, we just haven't been able to uh, have the, any that this particular federal government or any other really step into, uh, you know, that place of being that that full funder, that full funding partner of health care. The federal government's paying by just over 20 percent of health care. That's down from where this began at a 50-50 cost share. Uh, we've asked them to come back to about 35%, understanding that there has been some changes made uh, over the last 50 years. So is this just a continuation then, uh, Premier Mo, of the friction between Mr. Trudeau and the Premiers? Uh, do these meetings begin with some something less than total cooperation? Well, I, when it comes to health care, I think the... There has been less than total cooperation on the federal government's uh, side for for literally decades now. Um, We saw in the 60s, under the previous uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, is where the slip began to happen through the 70s into the 80s, um, where the federal government has uh, removed... you know, remove their their portion of the funding uh, to uh, to Canadian to the Canadian healthcare system. They did try to amend that with some tax points a number of years ago, um, but even with that, we're, we we still are, are nowhere near where we started, and we certainly aren't at an acceptable uh, acceptable portion coming into healthcare from the federal government. There needs to be uh, funding provided through the CHD into uh, provincial healthcare system so that we can ensure that we're addressing the challenges that we have that are different uh, from coast to coast to coast. Premier, what was the response then from the Prime Minister? Because we heard him say, I've, I've read a quote from him saying that he's not your banker. How did, what was the response? How did he put it? <laughs> as, as, as the Premier Pallister said, we're not looking for a banker. Um, we're looking for a full funding partner. Listen, between the Prime Minister and, and the Council of Federation table, which is all of the Premiers, we represent the very same people and the very same number of people that being all Canadians uh, collectively. 
Uh, we've asked the, the Prime Minister uh, for a meeting uh, a few months ago. We did have a meeting on the Canada health transfer, which didn't go real well. Um, and now we're, we're asking the federal government to, to engage in a meaningful way and to ensure that we have a, a solid, reliable health care system for years into the future, one that is supported by both levels of government in this nation and just simply isn't that way right now. Premier Mo, what are your thoughts? Uh, let me just shift gears here. The thoughts on vaccine availability increases. Do you have more information from the Prime Minister? Are you now aware of details of contractual agreements between the Trudeau government and pharmaceutical companies? Do you have a firm schedule of vaccines to be delivered to Saskatchewan? We're in the process of solidifying some of what came out uh, here in the last day or two with respect to increasing uh, our vaccine allotment in Canada by the end of the first quarter by 2 million, 2 million doses. Listen, that, that's good news. Um, we, we've delivered what that means to Saskatchewan is, is well, it's a 25% increase across Canada in the last two to three weeks of, of Q1. But the provinces, I think, are prepared to get those doses out to people. I know we are in Saskatchewan where we've delivered uh, in and around just over just under 100% of the doses that we've received. But this will mean we are going to do 150% of the vaccines in the next three weeks that we have done yet this year. But we're ready to do that. So this is good news uh, nonetheless. You've also been quoted as saying that uh, you may begin easing pandemic restrictions in Saskatchewan, and you may have news on that as early as this coming week. May I ask you to provide some detail for us? Yeah, we are looking uh, as soon as we are able to uh, start to get things back to normal in Saskatchewan. Uh, we have a, a very robust uh, vaccination plan. It's an age-based criteria where we're going, uh, ensuring that we're making vaccines available to our most elderly. Uh, we have all of our long-term publicly uh, publicly ran long-term care facilities have uh, had their residents have had access to vaccines, and now we're into our our age seventy above and a number of healthcare workers here in the province. Uh, as we get into phase two, we most certainly are going to be uh, looking at relaxing uh, further uh, the restrictions that we, that even in, in addition to what we may be considering here in the next couple of days. We have about eight uh, people per 100,000 vaccinated in Saskatchewan. When you look at the UK, who's using the same criteria as Saskatchewan, they have about 33 uh, people per 100,000 uh, vaccinated there. They had their lowest number of, in, of infections today since last September. The age-based criteria are... are uh, prioritization in vaccination is working our hospitalizations are dropping here in saskatchewan they've most certainly dropped in other areas like the uk it's working and as soon as we see those hospitalizations continue their trajectory down we're going to start relaxing the measures and letting people go back to uh, some degree of normal here in saskatchewan premier mo is there a conversation uh, between the premiers the council the federation on this issue of relaxation relaxing rather restrictions because of uh, covid i know in, in quebec for example they still have the curfew that starts at 8 p.m. Yeah, no, there's, there is uh, some differences. Uh, even within provinces, there are differences on, on uh, restrictions that are in place. As some provinces have some regional restrictions that are in place, and, and that's fine. It, that addresses uh, where some, uh, some higher infection rates uh, may be present. Um, here in Saskatchewan, we have, have not, for the most part, done regional uh, restrictions. Um, but we have had a very robust vaccination plan. Uh, we do have a few outbreaks uh, here and there. But for the most part, we see our hospitalization starting to uh, lower. And if you think back to the very front of this pandemic, that was everyone's concern, ours included, was how are we going to ensure that we can manage our health care system so that it's not overrun from COVID-19 uh, patients, so that it can provide the, the rest of health care that, that 
Saskatchewan people and all Canadians deserve. So as our hospitalizations reduce, um, we're going to be opening up uh, sectors of our community and our economy here in the next uh, number of weeks. Uh, what is your view of the extension of time between vaccinations to four months? That's now been okayed for this country. Canada is the only such jurisdiction in the world. What are your thoughts on that? Well, one, we wouldn't have to have the conversation uh, if we had enough vaccines here in Canada. We don't. So we're having this uh, secondary conversation about extending the intervals, which is, I will say, a game changer uh, for how quickly we are able to relax some of the measures here in Saskatchewan. Now, we have a ways to go before we we fully do that. But it is a, it is a game changer when we can now prioritize uh, essentially everyone for their first shot um, with just the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines we have access to. We should be have we should have everyone done sometime in June. If we can add AstraZeneca as well as the Janssen shots to that in any significant number, um, we'll be looking at at early June. All right, Premier. I have one more question for you, and I don't know whether this applies to Saskatchewan, but I spoke yesterday on the air about the uh, the decision that was taken in uh, in Peel region in Ontario. They've now rescinded it somewhat, but I understand it's take, it's happening in other jurisdictions because I've heard about parents facing this. Have any decisions been made in Saskatchewan to quarantine children alone for 14 days if a child in their immediate surrounding, like a classroom at school, tests positive for COVID? Have, have you run into that? I, I, I have heard of, of where some of those uh, recommendations have, have been where there's a child or an individual, not necessarily a child, that has been in close contact and 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 is asked to quarantine alone. Um, I, I think we need to all use our our common sense when it comes to children in particular or our elderly as well in the care that they need. Uh, there is no and we have no business uh, in my mind uh, telling people to quarantine a two, three, four year old, five year old child alone in their room to slip a, a meal through the door a couple of times a day. We're parents. Um, we, we, we just, that's not, um, that's just simply not the way that I, I would expect uh, advice to be going out from any health authority. However, I have heard uh, different, whether it's misinterpretations or, or misinterpretations as to how that advice should be provided. Um, we all need to use our common sense, take care of our family, take care of our friends, keep following the, the advice that is in place so that we don't, don't spread this disease. Uh, but most certainly, I think the most important thing for us to all remember as Canadians right now is when it is your turn uh, to go receive your vaccine, uh, go get in line and take your shot. That is ultimately how we are going to keep everyone safe. The uh, extension of the uh, time between our first and second COVID vaccination, now four months, according to Canada's National Advisory Committee on Immunization. We're joined on the program by Professor Suresh Tiku. He is a professor and director of vaccinology and immunotherapeutics, the program at the University uh, School of Public Health of the University of Saskatchewan. Uh, professor Tiku, thank you very much for the time. Are, are you surprised at the decision by the Canadian National Advisory Committee on Immunization to approve extending the period between vaccinations to four months? I think uh, the concept of immunizing more people with limited uh, supply of vaccine is uh, correct. But the problem is uh, what approach is uh, to be taken and the approach uh, being proposed to delay the second uh, immunization by uh, four months uh, has raised certain concerns with many people. And one of the concerns is that the decision does not appear to be based on some scientific principles. So you have said this is taking a chance 
and that it is risky. And you just said that there's, uh, it's not based on science. So uh, how concerned are you about the decision that's been taken? What, what, do, what, what are your concerns about the impact on Canadians who are lining up for a vaccination? Uh, the biggest concern is that uh, if you see the data, they have used uh, they have used two to four weeks data from uh, BC, CDC, Quebec, Israel, and UK. But that data is only up to four weeks, and they are extrapolating that data to cover uh, four months. And if you saw just about three days ago or four days ago, there is a uh, communication from a Scottish study which suggests that uh, the immunization, uh, the protection raises up to five weeks, and after five weeks, it starts declining. Say, for example, in five weeks, it was 84%, and then sixth week, it was 61%, and then seventh week, it was 58%. And this is from the uh, real-world data, uh, people who have been vaccinated with some of these vaccines. So if this is true, and the trend continues, the lower protection of uh, provided could allow new variants to arise b- because there will be competition between the virus and the low level of antibodies. It will also allow the, uh, existing variants to grow rapidly and spread rapidly. And finally, it may lead to more infections in susceptible people. So uh, putting all of what together, what you, what you just said, uh, are you telling us that your greatest concern is that by the time four months has gone by and a person's received one vaccination and now is going to get the second four months later, that second vaccine, the first vaccination will be, are you telling us is, your fears are that it will be useless? In, in principle, yes. In principle, yes, because uh, there is no data to support this. Until today, the data is only for, uh, uh, as I said, uh, up to six weeks uh, for most of the vaccines and about 12 weeks for AstraZeneca vaccine. And if you see, Canada is the only country who has done that. There's right. uh, U.S., France, EU. Nobody has, they have been asked to change this uh, second dose vaccine, but nobody has agreed to. And there has been some change in U.K. where they have said about 12 weeks. But that data is also, ba- that uh, decision is also based on AstraZeneca data. Although they don't have any data for Pfizer and Moderna vaccine, but at least for AstraZeneca vaccine, they have the data to cover up to 12 weeks. And with this Scottish study, it already many experts have raised the concerns and they have suggested that the UK decision may be a mistake and may prove costly. So when would we know if now we have this, uh, this, this, this method in place where you can, it's approved, I guess, that you can be vaccinated in March and then let's go now, April, May, June, July, you could get your second vaccination uh, in July and that would be approved in Canada. At what point in that four month period would we know that it's not working? I think uh, some data will come out of because uh, much of the vaccination started quite early in uh, UK, if I'm correct. So data will come out from UK and Israel and probably from United States also in maybe about uh, three to four weeks. Uh, new data should come out, which should really suggest uh, that uh, how long uh, these uh, antibodies remain in the system, which are protective. So, Dr. Tiku, how would you advise maximizing the benefit of one vaccination and perhaps addressing when the second shot can be administered? 
As I said, uh, right now the data is about six to eight weeks available for uh, Pfizer and about 12 weeks about AstraZeneca. So if uh, anybody wants to really go further, three to four weeks may be okay. That's what the uh, U.S. has done. They have extended the period for Pfizer and Moderna to seven week, six weeks from uh, three weeks and four weeks. So three, four weeks, I, I would still have no problem based on their literature. But extending to 16 weeks is a little bit uh, difficult to swallow. Yeah, we started with, what was it, three weeks? Uh, three weeks for Pfizer, four weeks for uh, Moderna, and four weeks for uh, AstraZeneca. Even for the layperson, going from three to four weeks, or six weeks, to four months, to, uh, to 12 weeks, that's a, or 16 weeks, that's a, I, my math is terrible, 16 weeks, that is a huge stretch. That is correct. And what is happening is that uh, because of all these uh, different messages from government, advisory committees, vaccine manufacturers, and uh, academic vaccine experts, it's creating really distrust in the community, and uh, it may lead to more vaccine hesitancy. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Let's talk about the economy and uh, talk about money and where we find ourselves. New story earlier this week, Canada posted its worst economic numbers on record in 2020. So from some perspective on this, Dr. Eric Kam, professor of macroeconomics at Ryerson University, good friend of this program's now, regular contributor. You know you're very popular, don't you? Uh, thank you very much. I I don't know how. I'm not even a household name in my own household, but I'll take it. <laughs> you have a great sense of humor. So, look, can you explain to us, please, what does it mean to the layperson when we read the headline, and even if we read the entire story, economics can be uh, a bit of a, a minefield if, we're, if we don't understand the fundamentals of it. So what does it mean to the layperson when we read the headline that Canada posted its worst economic numbers on record in 2020? Well, it's, it's a serious statement. I mean... In 2020, as you said, real gross domestic product, the, the ability of this country to put out goods and services, right? We've talked about this before. We've said that this is the equivalent in football to scoring points or hockey to scoring goals. How are we doing as a country? And the reality is, if it's the score, we're losing. We haven't lost, but we're losing. So real GDP shrank by 5.4%. That's the steepest one-year decline since data was, was recorded in 1961. And you often hear people say, well, thanks to the fact that we have a Bank of Canada and we have a government that intervenes in the economy and we have cheap interest rates, we'll, it won't get that bad. Well, if nothing else, I want people to understand that it is that bad. This, as I say, if, if we're keeping score, we're losing. So let's bring this into the home. So we have this, what you've just explained to us, we're losing. But in the home, we now, we hear things like your food bill is going to increase by more, by $700 in 2021. I think it's going to be a lot more than that. 
Uh, I would imagine there are people who've already seen their food bill increase by $700 in the first three months of, of uh, 2021. But taking that information, that this is the worst year in recorded history for economic numbers for Canada, what does that mean to the family inside the house? Well, it means that your life is going to change. I mean, we often talk about, and I talk a lot about things being real versus nominal. And just to take it into a real um, everyday language, it means what affects people and what doesn't. Because you can bury a lot of economics in meaningless statistics. And Lord knows the government tries on occasion to do that, including this week. They actually made a statement that nominal GDP, which is the gross domestic product when you don't account for, for lots of varying factors actually looked pretty good, but nominal GDP always looks pretty good. So to as a roundabout way of getting back to your question, because I tend to ramble, what does it mean to people? Well, it means that right now, and, and even once we declare this pandemic over, flat out, people just have less disposable income. So disposable income is the amount of income you you earn minus what you pay in in taxes. And people just are going to have far less disposable income. And if they have less income, then they have less income to spend. And it means that we are years away from getting back to any pre-pandemic spending levels. It also means that people, if they are unemployed, are going to have far less of a chance of getting a job because those jobs just do not exist. Uh, unemployment spells, if God forbid people find themselves without a job, are going to be longer. They're going to be more intense. So they're going to be just frankly harder for people to deal. There's far less chance of qualifying for loans or mortgages or rental agreements. So if you, again, God forbid, find yourself uh, without a home, it's going to be much harder to get a home. And I also believe that the statistics that we're looking at are really biased and not biased in our favor. We've We've talked before, Roy, about things like the discouraged worker hypothesis, people that just stop looking for work. And those people are not uh, represented in the statistics. And there's also a, another bias called the part time bias. People that may have part time work, they want full time work, but they're not represented in the statistics either. So I think if you just want to say, how is this affecting um, Jane and John Q. Public in their home? I think that that the, that, that Mr. and Mrs. Public have less money, can look forward to less money. And if they are in any way housing or food insecure, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Hmm. So then we add to that a trillion dollars in national debt. We add to that provinces that are running massive debt loads as well. We add to that, and we, you know, I've talked about this, uh, we add to that that uh, even before the pandemic, 49% of Canadians were within $200 and not being able to pay their monthly bills. And then we add to that a $400 billion deficit and a projection for 2021 that it's going to be close to $400 billion again. We're just getting deeper into the hole. We are just getting deeper into the hole. So let's get back to your, um, your comment about the article that you read. I mean, think about the things that are in the down column for 2020. I mean, they say it's the worst year on record. Look at what's down. Demand. Final domestic demand, again, how, what are people buying? And the answer is not near enough. Business investment, household spending on durables and semi-durables, food, beverage, accommodation services, travel, tourism, and hotels. And when you add this up, it really isn't a hard formula to, to put together. 
and say that when people are not earning enough money and then there's not enough business open where to spend that money, we know that we are in a great deal of trouble. And what troubles me also is when you look in the up column, because some people, and I've heard them on the media say that, that I'm a doomsday person. And well, first of all, I'm honored I'm being discussed in the media, but they call me doomsday. Um, and they say, well, there's things that are up like government spending, education spending, healthcare spending, social assistance, uh, cannabis and prescription sales, not a shock. Um, I say to them, so what? I say that again, these are not real. These are not drivers of growth. If we're gonna have drivers of growth in the economy, we need consumption on the part of households. We need investments on the part of firms. But right now, neither households nor firms have the disposable income or the profits to go out and spend. So it's not that I disagree that there's some up in the relationships and in the statistics, but number one, the ups are dwarfed by the downs and the ups are not drivers of growth anyway. How do we go, how do we go about understanding economics if, for, if it's a mystery for us? But before we do that, you talked about the downside of things. But we have some incredibly talented people. We have millions of people in this country who are just great producers. We have entrepreneurs who, who are globally uh, excellent. So we have, we have natural resources that we don't nearly uh, maximize to our national benefit. What would you say we should do and can do to reverse the trend of that headline that we read that said Canada posted its worst economic numbers on record in 2020? How do we approach that? I would argue that much like 99% of the things I'm asked, number one, I think we need better education. Um, I think that um, people have to understand the difference between economic rhetoric and economic fact. And that's a mouthful. That's hard to do. I understand that. So what I try to do, and I see what a lot of other people are trying to do, is just break things down into manageable components, i.e., I, I wrote down three things that we should watch this week. Number one, there is a rumor out there that the Bank of Canada is considering a raising of the interest rates due to the fear of inflation. And I would argue that if they do that, they're going to put the economy back into the hole in which they are trying to emerge. Number two, there's something called the paradox of thrift. And I don't think people know enough about this. Everybody assumes that savings is a wonderful thing and that households should save. Well, that's true, except that the more that households save, it's bad for the economy because spending is a driver of growth and savings is not. So I think people have to think about that. And number three, there are things afoot in the economy that people should know. My, one of the ones I think is interesting is something called renovictions, which is I hear people talking about how happy they are to hear rent falling in the GTA. Well, that's fine, except do they know that landlords can apply for something called an above guideline increase um, for costs that they've incurred? And that includes renovations, which many of them are doing during the pandemic. So they can, you can cheer in the short run for many things, but you've got to think about the long run. And so to answer your question, I think we have to understand that people are people and people respond to incentives. And the government has been giving away billions of dollars. Now, whether you agree with that or not is for another conversation. But what about the government, instead of giving money away, how about we stimulate and we incentivize spending on the part of households and businesses. Provide incentives 
provide incentives for people and business owners to spend this magical pot of money on which people claim is buried in all of these mattresses. So how do we do that? How do you incentivize people to spend? Because we do know, or we've been told anyway, that there's a great deal of saving that's been going on in the last year during the pandemic. Now, that's a finite amount of money, but it's not probably not going to be inconsiderable. And it would, I don't know, you tell me. I would think, though, it could provide at least a temporary boost. It's like putting cables on your battery, giving it a shot and starting the car, and then you're on your own. Well, that's true. And so the way that you do it is you go about some of the ways that you provide incentives in the economy. Uh, One of them, of course, uh, the most famous one is attacking attacking positively people's tax returns. Things like when there was a home renovation tax benefit, Mm -hmm. they had unprecedented levels of home renovation in this country. So it's not that hard for the government to incentivize by using a positive return on people's taxes. It's just one way, but it's actually a good way to say, please spend your money and we will give you a benefit to doing so. You can do that with many consumptive tools, home renovations just being one of them. Send your kids to camp, send your kids to swimming lessons, make it 100% tax deductible. There's ways that we can do it. I mean, one of the other ways, of course, we are doing, which is keeping interest rates super low. And I don't just mean low, I mean super low. Make the cost of borrowing um, negligible so that people will have no reason. So how much, how how much control does Canada have in that regard? Do we have control? I mean, we have control of our interest rates, but global pressures, they're not global pressures. Here we, here we go to my not really understanding more than the very basic fundamentals of economics. Does global pressure not establish to a certain extent where our interest rates are? I actually don't believe that. Um, I think that that's something that gets thrown around as a way of um, excusing a country when it makes interest rate mistakes, that it had to abide by the global economy. But Canada is a small open economy. Um, Trade, believe it or not, is a decreasing importance uh, of our economy. If you've noticed, and we've discussed this, borders are have been shut and borders are going to reopen, of course, but really the stimulation has to come from within the country. We have luckily our own monetary policy. We are not the 51st state. We can control many things. We have, an, we have our own currency. We have our own central bank. And so to incentivize, we have the ability, especially using monetary policy, to do so. We do not need to beg the rest of the world. It, isn't isn't on one policy. of the things we should be doing, uh, creating less barriers, putting up less barriers for interprovincial trade? Well, I've listen, I've been saying this since Brian Mulroney was prime minister. Um, we have so many problems interprovincially. I don't even know why we're discussing free trade with other countries. Not that I'm a, I'm a horrible. Oh, I got it. We, we can't even establish it for ourselves. Right. And, and if you could just get the free flow of goods and services and get our capital and our current accounts flowing between provinces, we would be able to fill in so many of the deficits yeah. left by free trade problems. But nobody, nobody seems to want to discuss that. And in fact, not to name drop, but I had lunch with Brian Mulroney. OK, I'm name dropping a couple of years ago. And I asked him why that was never put on the table. And he said, because that wouldn't get him reelected. Okay, Reelection exactly. was going to happen on the basis of free trade. But yes, I've argued for many years, we've got to stimulate interprovincial trade first. OK, so in 30 seconds, fundamentals of understanding economy are uh, economics are what? Oh, this is actually interesting. Here's 30 seconds. Alexander Rosenberg in the United States just published a paper. He said economics is not science, it's math. Well, let me tell you. I'm going to publish a paper that says Alexander Rosenberg should stick in his lane and stick to philosophy. It is a social science designed to talk about consumption, production, 
and distribution. Or as the best economics professor in Canada, Abby Cohen says, economics is the study of good housekeeping. It's not an exclusive discipline. It is not just for the mathematically gifted. It is there to solve okay. a few puzzles. And that's all it's meant to do. It says the following really quickly. Oh, no, I don't have any time. I don't have any time. I'm out of time. I have to go. Kids called a hard break. Well, then we'll break. do it next time. Yeah, for sure. Dr. Bogosh, thank you very much for the time. So much has taken place over the last few days with vaccines uh, coming in, we're told, more rapidly and provinces ramping up. We have the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. We have uh, the extension of the time from the four, one, well, first shot to the second, possibly four months. Which one do you want to take on first? Let's do the extension, the time extension. Okay. What do you think of that? Um, it's complicated. <laughs> uh, I like it. For starters, the take-home point is I think it's smart. I think it's smart. I think there is data, uh, and I don't think I know there's data. We actually have decent data to suggest that you can safely um, extend the duration between dose one and dose two by two months, maybe even by three months. There's some decent, reasonable data you can look at to, that, that demonstrates that that would be a reasonable thing to do. I, I'm not averse to extending it to four months, but I'd love for the NASI uh, table to show us their work. And you know, if you're gonna make that recommendation, we all get it, we all, it makes sense from a public health standpoint, but, and, and many of us in the business know that it makes sense from an immunologic standpoint, but it would have been very, very helpful for someone from that organization to stand up and demonstrate how they came to the conclusion of four months and what modeling or what data they use. Because, I mean, I look at this stuff pretty closely and I can certainly see two months, I can see three months. Four months is a bit of a stretch. And again, I'm not averse to it, but if you're going to ask the Canadian public to do it, you should at least communicate that and demonstrate how you came to that conclusion. What does it say that Canada is the only jurisdiction doing this? Well, I think it says a lot, right? Like, again, I'm not averse to it. I, I think it's a bold thing to do. Um, but show us your work. It's like a grade 10 math problem. It's not just how you got to the answer. Or it's not just the answer. It's how you got to that answer. How do you come to this conclusion? And what, you know, was there modeling involved? Was there other data involved? It's just, it would be very helpful for if you want to get public trust and public buy-in, and of course we know this is a contentious subject, you've, you've got to communicate this in an effective manner. And one of the ways of communicating this in an, in an effective manner is by showing how you came to that conclusion. Okay, so I, can, I can look you in the eye and justify two months. I can look you in the eye and justify three months. And I can say, yeah, four months is probably okay, but they're the ones saying it, so they should get up and, and, and show their work. Okay. When we look at the different vaccines that are on stream now, uh, and, and you and I have talked about this before, about people saying, well, I don't want this one, and I don't like that one. I don't like that. Should I be able to choose? And we've talked about that. But please address it again. And here's the question I, uh, bouncing around inside my head. Would it be, you know, would it be, wouldn't it be better if all the major pharmaceutical companies were to decide, look, we're going to work together and come up with, with one or two vaccines. We'll all work on them. We'll share the profits, whatever we need to do, but we'll make it simple. We'll have one or two vaccines that we all agree work, and they'll pass the test, and they'll help, help all the folks around the world. Am I being, uh, am I being uh, juvenile about this? I love you to pieces, but yes. Because <laughs> we didn't know which ones so. were going to work. We didn't know which ones were going to work and which ones weren't going to work. And like huge vaccine companies like Merck, who you'd think would have a winner, 
They failed. Their vaccine That's didn't work. True. This was inevitable. This was going to happen. You needed to have multiple groups look at this simultaneously. And for the love of science, you know, we've got several that work really, really well. I hate these comparisons. This one is 94%. This is efficacy. Now, what does it this mean to the 60%. average person, right? Well, exactly. And the problem is they're not entirely fair comparisons still. We've got to acknowledge there's going to be some vaccines that are probably going to be better than others. But I also think we should acknowledge that in the context of a true public health emergency where Canadians are dying and you have all these products, every single one of them does exactly what you want it to do. They decrease your risk of getting really sick, going to hospital and dying. They all do that. They all do that. The right answer is let's protect as many lives as possible. Let is, let's just get these vaccines into the most vulnerable populations as quickly as possible. Stop the deaths. And then when we have a moment to breathe later on, we're going to say, OK, everyone stop dying now. Great. Let's sort this out. There might be some vaccines that are better for one group and other vaccines better for another group. We're all and no matter who we are, we're all going to need a booster. We're all going to need an updated variant of concern vaccine down the line. And then we can sort it out, you know, six months plus down the road. But right this minute and you have to decide who's going to get what vaccine right now. I'll take whatever I could get. So talk to us, please, about the rollout. We're hearing the provinces are ramping up and getting ready to do it much more quickly than they have. And hopefully that's the case because we've been lagging behind so many other countries. But how do you feel about how things are progressing? Where do you think we'll be by end of summer? Oh, God, I think we're going to be in such a good place by the end of summer. I actually think we're going to be in such a good place by the end of March. Um, you know, obviously, we know the pace and we know the how, how this has lagged. Um, but if you just look at metrics like between mid-February to now, you can see a tremendous growth in the pace of vaccination. Um, just speaking with Ontario, for example, you know, before mid-February, we were vaccinating up to 15,000 people per day. We're now at 40,000 people per day. And just watch this explode because we haven't even started, right? Once vaccines start pouring in, which they've start, they will this week and next week, like as we move through March, we're going to kick it from second year into fifth year. Uh, and, and that's when you've got your centralized sign-up system working and, and you've got these mass vaccine sites. Some of them are going to be going through 24-7, community centers vaccinating, pharmacies vaccinating, primary care vaccinating. Like we are going to start. It's going to be impressive. And, and it's not, this isn't a pipe dream. Like you can don't have to scratch the surface too far to look at the different public health units and the plans they have and the programs they have in place. Like once vaccines start pouring in, which they will, and they are very soon, like I'm talking in a week or two, you're going to see this scale up massively. It's going to be impressive. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 